You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Okay, time for some anti-diet talk. Anyone who knows me knows that I was deep in the belly of the diet industry for a long time as a writer for many, many, many weight loss articles in mainstream magazines like Prevention, Fitness, and lots more. And I never really thought of it as the diet industry, honestly. I just thought we were giving people tools to help themselves. And somewhere along the line, it became clear to me that diets don't work. We'd put some people on a diet, some would lose weight, others wouldn't. We'd tell the stories of those who did, and they'd inevitably gain the weight back down the line. Wash, rinse, repeat with another diet. Now I'm in this menopause space, and the diet culture feels harder and heavier than ever. And one that comes up a lot as a way to balance hormones, improve sleep, and pretty much do everything but the dishes is the keto diet. So I really wanted to sit down and dig into what the keto diet is, what it was originally designed for, and the impact it can have on women's hormones. So I'm happy to bring you this conversation with this week's guest, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Jen is a Canadian registered dietitian, a naturopathic doctor, and an intuitive eating coach. She helps women navigate the physical and emotional changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause including the search for food freedom and body confidence, which comes up an awful lot on this show. She's also the host of the Midlife Feast podcast and runs a group support program called Beyond the Scale, which helps women undiet their lives after 40 so they can nourish a relationship with food that helps them discover the magic of midlife. You can find her at jensalibhuber.ca. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, Jan is not a sports dietitian, so we mostly come at this one from a general women's health perspective, which is important for athletes and active women too, of course, because that's our baseline for everything. On the athletic side, I've dug into this a lot with Dr. Stacey Sims, as many of you may know, and the keto diet can also be problematic for active women. It can kick up our sympathetic drive, so we're more anxious and prone to being depressed, It can be problematic when mixed with training. A study out last month showed that it can increase cortisol, inflammation, and hepcidin, which is a hormone that makes it harder to absorb iron. And that's bad because it's already hard to manage hepcidin post-menopause. There's also some research showing that cutting out carbs can be detrimental to bone health, which we really don't need in this menopause transition. The bottom line in my mind is cutting out carbs today doesn't make any more sense than cutting out fat did in the 1990s. There's a reason there are three macronutrients. We need them all. Whenever there's a diet that is wildly restrictive, my red flags go flying. I don't want to criticize people who may have tried it or who are on it, but I think it's worth exploring where these pitfalls lie. So we go into keto, fasting, dieting in general, and a few menopausal food myths and misunderstandings on this one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, 
I want to give a shout out and a thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast guide service so far. I appreciate you. I also had a few questions about it. Mainly, is it just a transcription? And no, it is not just a transcription. It would be super duper easy to spit out a transcription of the show. But if you've ever read a straight up podcast transcription, you know that they're pretty messy and not super useful because these are just free flowing conversations. So what I do is go through the show, pull out all the salient points and put them in a clear digestible format along with the guest's advice, recommendations, and so on. I include links to studies, products, and anything else you need to put what we covered in that show into action in your life. And of course, the subscription service supports the show. You can sign up at feistymenopause.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where you can come in and join our conversations. If you have ideas for the show, hit me up at hitplaynotpause at lifeisty.com. Thank you, as always, for the hearts, the ratings, the reviews. If you like the show, please share it on your socials, share it with your friends. It helps us to grow, and we are continuing to grow, and I thank you. And finally, I'd like to thank Noon, who is a longtime sponsor of the show. It's getting to be race and event season, and I'm going to be stocking up on their Podium Series products to stay on top of hydration for my upcoming long gravel odysseys, which we'll be talking about as the season goes on. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. All right, well... Jen, I am super stoked that you replied to my cold call to have you on the show because I, you know, I, I don't do many of those because they give me a little bit of angina, but like I, I saw, I watch your socials and I just love the spirit of them as well as of course the message of them. And I thought I really need to have this woman. So I sent you that DM or that through your, through the, the sheet through your website, which I, I never have any confidence that people are going to be like, yeah, there's this person that wants to talk to me, but you got right back to me and I'm really happy about that. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. Excellent. Well, let's talk keto because I actually, aside from, you know what? I don't know if I've ever talked keto on this show, which is kind of shocking, right? Because I'm talking to performance-minded menopausal women. I don't know if it's ever come up. It's come up a lot in my general life and in my social feeds, but let's talk keto because it's definitely, I feel like um, I've seen it a lot in my athletic life over the past decade, you know, ultra runners, ultra riders, people are like, oh, I'm the world-class fat burner and all I need to eat is lard. You know, I mean, I've seen like a lot of that, but now I'm seeing it like aggressively being uh, put into the menopause space and marketed to menopausal women for like, you know, people in their scrubs pointing at the camera, like it balances your hormones and blah, blah, blah. And like gives you wings. And I'm just like, okay, let's start. Let, let's talk. <laughs> we need to talk about what this is. So I read a post where you described it as your body's break in case of emergency system, which I thought was great. So if you could just let's kick this off, explain ketosis for those who've heard of the diet, but do not know exactly what it is referring to or how it works. Okay. So in general, the way that human bodies work is that we are designed to produce energy from different fuel sources, but we prefer glucose or carbohydrates 
especially certain parts of our body, red blood cells, so energy production, uh, brain cells, but in general, most of our, our body is set up to use and burn carbohydrates as primary fuel. Ketosis is the breaking case of emergency system, where if we don't have stored we, we have limited ability to store carbohydrates as glycogen, but you know, if we don't have stored carbohydrates or we haven't ingested carbohydrates for a period of time, we can then start burning fatty acids and either stored or ingested. And so we burn those fatty acids and we can through a longer, more complicated process, produce the fuel that our body requires. And so Initially, this diet was developed for people with epilepsy who had treatment resistant epilepsy, especially children. And somehow it was discovered that, you know, when they changed the, the engine fuel, that the engine fired differently, meaning the brain, that the brain fired differently in a way that produced fewer seizures. And it has been a very effective treatment option for some treatment resistant children. Um, but that, I think that process then created some intrigue in the world of health, nutrition, weight loss, and the idea of being able to burn fat, of course, would be very appealing to anybody in that industry. And so then this diet was then co-opted, I think as a, an extension or as like the next generation of Atkins. So anybody who's, you know, in midlife and listening to this certainly would remember the Atkins of the nineties. Um, and it was kind of, you know, the next generation of that, that we're not just going low carb, high protein, we're really going to make this like a scientific, you know, endeavor where we're going to start burning fat for fuel. And so that was really the keto craze that believe it or not actually started around 2015, 2016. That was when it first started entering my kind of personal and professional circle. So we're talking now like close to 10 years. Um, but yeah, that's kind of some of the background on it. The idea is that if we can reduce the amount of carbohydrates that we ingest to less than 25 grams of net carbs, which is very, very low, essentially it's like a whiff of carbohydrate, right? right? You know, if you, most fruit servings, which would be like one small fruit or half a cup of fruit would be in the range of 15 grams of carbohydrate. So we're talking about like a banana, essentially, um, a slice of bread would be in the 20 gram of carbohydrate range. Um, you know, half a cup of rice would be, so we're talking essentially no carbohydrates. And so some of the discussions around keto would, you know, categorize it as total or net, but the idea is that if you stay under a net 25 grams of carbohydrates, that your body is burning fatty acids primarily for fuel. So that's kind of the basis behind it. And this, I just want to make this hard, this distinction for, for people, especially in my audience, because we do talk a lot about you want to be a good fat burner because of course you do. You know, I mean, I've gotten tested at the Olympic training center and they're like, you're a really good fat burner. And that's, but that's a product of aerobic training. That's a product. Like you're always burning both things, right? You're, you just want to be able to be in that fat, like burning fat preferentially longer when you're out there running a marathon, doing whatever, because you have those limited carb storms, but you need carbohydrates to also burn fat correctly. Like absolutely. Right. And your brain yeah. needs carbs, correct? So what is the like ketone bodies that they talk about that you're, are you making glucose through, through fat? Is that the process to feed your brain? Is that oversimplifying it? it? It is a little bit of oversimplification because, you know, ketones really still 
can't be converted to glucose, which is why even on a keto diet, you have to have some glucose. Like you need some of that for the brain. Um, the brain and red blood cells can only ingest can only use glucose, which is why we have that minimum requirement, but the rest of the body's kind of function and metabolism in case of emergency can survive on ketone bodies. Okay. So I think that in case of emergency part is important because what happens internally when we are in a state of ketosis, if you're talking about stress and cortisol, yeah. So the interesting thing about any restrictive diet is that when you are in restriction, and especially if you are in, you know, significant restriction, meaning that you are not meeting your body's daily needs, and this doesn't have to be not eating at all. This can just be consistently not eating enough. And that is a stress. So your body perceives that as a stress, because it doesn't know the difference between famine and, or, you know, restriction that is voluntary. And so there are, there's a fair amount of research supporting this elevation in cortisol that we see with restrictive diets, but even diets that are just classified as low carb, not even keto. And so what happens is that, you know, when your cortisol levels are high, even if they're not outside of the normal range high. And, you know, to be clear, there really isn't a def definition or a defined, you know, upper end of normal that causes problems. Because I think that when we're talking about cortisol medically, we're usually talking about disease processes that are producing elevations in cortisol or depleting cortisol. What we're talking about with this kind of, you know, keto stress or low carb stress or diet stress is a persistent elevation, but still within normal range, but that is likely affecting how you're feeling. So when you're in fight, flight, or freeze, um, you know, your brain doesn't know the difference between real or perceived threat. It just knows that it doesn't have regular access to food and that it is being asked to perform with less than it needs. And it's really difficult to imagine thriving in that kind of situation long-term. So I have, I have two follow-ups with that. So what I'm hearing is that even if I'm getting enough uh, calories from all my fat, if I don't have enough carbohydrates, I'm still, my body is still sort of low energy availability because it doesn't have what it wants. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's, it's not in its kind of optimal zone for, um, you know, energy production or really kind of anything. So, you know, we're not just talking about metabolism We're you know, and if you talk to people who do keto um, or, you know, in the nineties, there was this thing called the Atkins attitude. And when I describe that to people who are in keto or trying keto, they're like, oh yeah, I've been there. Right. Where like, you're just irritable and cranky and tired and you don't want to do anything. And, you know, you're mad at the world and, you know, people who, who are in this, persistent state of restriction or dieting or low carb or keto or whatever you want to call it. One of the big things that I notice for women in midlife is that it's affecting their ability to fall and stay asleep because that persistent kind of cortisol secretion, especially in the evening makes it difficult to fall and stay asleep. And so when we reintroduce some carbohydrates, that is often the number one thing they say to me, it's I'm relaxed at night again. 
Well, where does that dovetail with menopause? Right. Like that was when you were, that was my second question is when you were talking about that low level cortisol of sort of always being in that state with, with the change in sex hormones, aren't we already kind of there? Like, so now we're just adding another layer of stress on stress. Yeah. So that's the, the other part of it is that, you know, we're our perimenopause is defined by inconsistent levels of estrogen and progesterone that can last for, you know, many years, four or five, even up to eight or 10 years of this up and down, you know, level of estrogen and progesterone from month to month. And we know that restriction actually suppresses sex hormone production. And so I have seen not infrequently that women will think that they're in you know, menopause because they're 43 and they've lost their period. And they also happen to be doing, you know, keto, low carb restriction, not even, you know, we're still talking about getting enough calories, but they're not in that, you know, macronutrient balance that includes all the groups that when we start reintroducing these carbohydrates, their cycles start again, (laughs) and they're actually not in menopause. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that we need to appreciate that there's already a lot of changes happening. And so when we add that layer of intense restriction, um, it is very difficult to imagine thriving under those circumstances. Again, a couple of questions. Is this all about weight loss? Keto is absolutely. It is. I can't imagine anything. And I mean, even when they've even studies that have looked at, keto and intermittent fasting and low carb diets for conditions like insulin resistance and things like that, they have not been consistently shown to have any benefit over a balanced, higher protein, higher fiber diet. Um, you know, and so all of the claims around it being a miracle cure for diabetes are not evidence-based in my opinion. So yeah, it is all about weight loss. And so, and you know, again, as I mentioned to you before the show, I know that I have a self-selected sample and my sample of people that I work with is biased because there are people who this has not worked for them. But when you hear the same thing over and over again, combined with what's in the research, combined with what you hear from other health professionals, other dietitians and people who work with, you know, people in this sphere, um, people generally don't want to do keto. They do it because they think they have to. Does it work for weight loss? Well, can we define work? So work, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, if we're looking at any kind of program that is pursuing intentional weight loss, and I say that, you know, I use that word. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about a plan that is pursuing intentional weight loss, the changes that are implemented have to be sustainable because the minute that you stop doing them, your body will re-regulate back up to where it was before. And that's the problem with all diets is that, you know, pursuing intentional weight loss through control and restriction generally isn't sustainable for most people for all the reasons. And as a result, people will wait cycle. And as, you know, research continues to emerge around weight cycling, it seems like that's actually um, has the potential to be more detrimental to our metabolic health and long-term health than maintaining a higher body weight, because that cycling of losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight may have some metabolic side effects, um, independent of the, the weight or the number itself. So when I'm talking about, you know, when I say like, does it work? Well, it's not going to work any better than any other diet. 
Uh, and that's the thing with any diet is that there is no one diet that has been shown to be better, more reliable, produce more consistent results. They all quote unquote work for three to six months. And then at 12 months, two years, five years, people have regained, regained all the weight and then some. And so, but what I see with keto is that it is less likely to work because of the amount of restriction and control and deprivation that is required. You can only convince yourself for so long that you want a pizza crust made out of mozzarella and, and coconut flour um, before you start to see, you know, stars the next time that you see like the puffy bread, crusty pizza. It reminds me of like the Weight Watchers days where they're like, just break up pieces of cauliflower and call it popcorn. And I'm like, mm, maybe not. I, yeah, I mean, cauliflower is not popcorn. And here, and here we are again. Um, yeah, I know. Poor cauliflower, right? Like it has, you know, it, it, everyone tries to make it into something that it's not. It just wants to be a vegetable. It doesn't. Right, and it's a great vegetable. Rice. It's fine. It's fine. It but it's not rice. <laughs> like, and I have a honestly a larger question about keto that really bothers me. Um, it might be the biggest thing that bothers me because I'm I'm sort of logically oriented with the science stuff. Is that when I listen to and I've listened to a lot preparing this show. I listen to biohackers. I listen to keto people. I read a lot about keto from keto uh, advocates and to a dime, they all say it's very hard to stay in ketosis. Your body kicks itself out as soon as like stress can kick you out the whiff of too many, like it's like they're testing themselves constantly breathing into things, taking blood tests, and they're not actually in ketosis. Yeah. Like it's hard. So I wonder like when people are like, oh, I I'm keto. I'm like, are you? Because, you know, I don't want to be skeptical, but I'm like, but are you actually in this magical state you think you are, or are you just doing super low carb? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that, um, we're not monitoring people. So, some people do use the urine sticks or they have mm -hmm. the keto blood monitors and things like that. But, you know, again, if we're talking on sustainability, that kind of stuff is at the top of that list. <laughs> Wait till I pee. I'll let you know if I can go to dinner with you. Yeah, I, exactly. I'm going to right? take blood, breathe in this thing and pee on the stick. And then I'll tell you what we and, can do. And, you know, the women that I work with are already afraid of food. They're already afraid of yeah. making the wrong choices, what they should and shouldn't eat. You add a layer of like, I don't know definitively how many carbs are in this sauce, or I need to ask what the ingredients are. And if it contains any glucose, any like they, you know, so yeah. Um, I think that it is absolutely the least sustainable diet out there. It's a prison. It is a prison. Yeah. It really, I'm really so tired is. of that. I'm so tired of people putting women in prisons in their own mind to be afraid of their body. I'm so tired of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, but it's also this idea that weight loss is a proxy for health. And, mm. you know, I think that we really need to redefine that because if we're looking at the big picture of health, the things that we encourage all people, not just women, but the things that we encourage people to do in the name of health, but to produce weight loss are not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
So we're telling people, and it's even more so with keto, you need to think about your food all the time. You need to measure, you need to track, you need to sacrifice, you need to, you know, be vigilant. And we're also telling them that, you know, if they get to this magical place, that it's like a destination, you know, this whole idea of maintenance has been sold as, you know, this magical place that you'll arrive after you lose weight. But anybody who has lost weight knows that there is no safe landing spot. You know, you get to the number and then it's then what, and then you live in fear of that number moving. And so we really need to work with women to redefine what is it that you're trying to achieve with your relationship with food. And if it is only intentional weight loss, we need to expand your definition of health. And I will, I will add performance to that, Jen, because my audience, and I get this because there are a lot of women who are empowered to weight sports, be it cycling, be it running, you know, where uh, you can pay a wattage penalty if you don't have like the power you need for the weight you are. I I've spent a lifetime in that space. So I understand that said, I also know many people, including myself who have had magical weight numbers in their head that were not their best race weights that, you know, when I'm well-fed and have the energy I need, like I have had some of my best races, eight, 10 pounds heavier than some of my not greatest weights when I was, you know, below my magical weight. And I thought, Ooh, I'm below my magical weight. It must be amazing, but it wasn't, you know, but like, it's, it's very hard. That's another prison. And it's really hard to break free of that prison and stepping off the scale is one good way to start in my opinion. Absolutely. And, you know, we need to reframe and accept that there is a huge range of body diversity. And not just in how we look, but also how our body performs. So when we talk about, you know, size and shape being largely genetically determined, we're not just talking about what your body looks like. We're talking about your metabolism, maybe your body's preference for certain fuels, your body's preferred body fat percentage, the type of muscle you have and how much you have of it. How easy is it for you to um, you know, build muscle and maintain muscle. Like there's so many moving parts to the genetics of how a body looks and performs. It really seems kind of, you know, silly to try and define people into these categories based solely by the number on the scale. Hard agree. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. 
As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So how... How did we get to this place? Because this is a, this is the bridge I don't I, I don't understand. Where and a please tell me what balancing hormones means because I actually don't really know what that term refers to. But like, why is this diet being promised as a way to quote unquote balance hormones in perimenopause? Do you know what the the root of that is? Is there anything it's tech attached to at all? Well, I mean, the idea of balancing hormones is a wellness culture term, right? You know, we have reference ranges for hormones in different reproductive ages and stages and in different parts of the female cycle that can be defined. And so you can have a hormone imbalance at 25 if you don't have a period. Um, but the hormone changes in perimenopause are not an imbalance per se, because they're expected, they're pre-programmed into our DNA, but those changes are often associated and or blamed for the body changes that 80% of women experience. And as a result, the keto diet is sold as a way to balance your hormones, AKA lose weight in perimenopause. So there really isn't any evidence that it could ever balance hormones that way because the hormones are changing because of this, you know, change that it has been predetermined um, by the fact that you were born with the uterus and ovaries. Um, it has really nothing to do with whether or not you're at a certain weight. Right, right. And, and I know like before we leave, because I, I want to get a bit into intermittent fasting and a couple other things, but um, I know you're not a sports dietitian, but our audience is quite active. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts of adding exercise stress on top of this keto diet state. Uh, there's been some concerning research recently on bone health. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, there there is a relationship between exercise and stress. And there, you know, kind of is a, a sweet spot between, you know, getting too much um, and getting the right amount. And that sweet spot is obviously going to be individual, but, you know, I've heard again, not a sports dietitian, but I know from talking to people who work in this area that it's, you know, 
if you keep your training to, you know, under 45 minute sessions, you're generally not getting into that stress response, which is physiological, um, but not always welcome. And so, you know, I think that when you add any stressor on top of it, so for a high performance athlete, especially, I just can't imagine how this wouldn't have a negative effect um, on not just performance, um, but how they feel in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add some of that. I, I, um, some of the research I found on this into the show notes so people can check that out themselves. But there's, there is some concerning research coming out as people look more into the effects of this on people who are actually, you know, a lot of this is done on sedentary people, but now we're looking at it at athletes and seeing some of the ramifications there. So uh, let's move to a parallel path because, you know, they tend to like walk hand in hand here, the intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, and I, I've seen, I showed you that reel that promises that it can promote weight loss, decrease belly fat, decrease cortisol, improve in glucose intolerance, protect against memory decline, improve liver function, and improve <laughs> cholesterol in menopausal women. That's a lot. Um, you know, but I look, I dig into the research and, you know, there's some research on fasting. It gets very murky, but again, it, I don't see it. I, I just don't see all these promises in the literature. There isn't. And any studies that are out there are small and short term. Um, you know, when you look at any study that has been done on a longer, uh, longer term basis or with a larger population uh, sample size, the results are kind of like they're they're really not. They're either statistically not significant or they actually like trend the other way or they're just not all that impressive. And when again, when you consider the amount of um, effort that goes into only eating at a certain time of day, almost every day, most days of the year, whatever, um, it quickly becomes unsustainable because what you can't always have that kind of control. You can't always control when you're going to eat and not going to eat. Um, you know, for all the reasons you might have most of that under control, but it's not going to be perfect. Yes. And I think that what happens in my, and this is my personal opinion based on being part of that diet machine for a bunch of years in publishing is that I got to a point, Jen, where I honestly believe that we could bring women in and we could have them, uh, we could have them on the cotton candy diet and they would lose weight. I'm I, anyway, and I, I, I that sounds jaded and cynical because it is because as soon as you start paying attention to what you eat, like, okay, I'm going to eat cotton candy at 10 o'clock. And then it always has, well, then you're going to eat your vegetables. Like it always has other things about it, but like you're, you're just paying attention. You're the intentionality and the strict guardrails that you have, like that is what causes, in my opinion, people to lose weight because they're doing this artificial thing for this amount of time. Right. And then they're paying all kinds of attention to other things and maybe they're exercising more. I mean, we saw it to a, to a T and still some people would just gain weight, but a lot of people would like lose weight. And I feel like any diet that comes along, whether it be keto, intermittent fasting, Atkins, South beach, if any of these actually worked, we wouldn't still be here. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, and that's the thing is that, we keep reinventing the same wheel, but we just keep, we're like painting it a different color. Right. And it, you know, the problem with most diets is that most women want a diet or a plan because they want to think about food less, but the process of committing to a diet makes you think about food more. 
And the more you think about food, the more you worry about food, the more stressful food becomes and the harder it becomes to stay in that lane without feeling like you're constantly about to make a mistake or without, you know, again, just being obsessed with food. So that diet cycle, it doesn't matter what the diet is. It has a predictable series of events where you start out feeling excited, encouraged, you know, you have a plan this time it's going to work. It doesn't matter what kind of support you have. It feels exciting at first. And then after a while though, it feels like work. You might start to feel, you know, that you're not seeing the results that you want. You might start to experience deprivation and cravings or why me? Why can't I go out and have what I want? Why am I the one who always has to watch everything? And it becomes unsustainable because we're hardwired to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And, you know, food should be a source of pleasure in our life. And until we can find a way of eating that doesn't have to be tightly controlled, that is also enjoyable and pleasurable and fits our life, it will always feel like work. And, you know, it's, it's just so it's really clear to me because I've seen that so many times personally, special. I was there too. Um, you know, and it was in 2016 that I closed my practice to weight loss. Cause I no longer felt like it was ethical to prescribe weight loss that I was, I could guarantee, you know, I wasn't going to put someone on a diet knowing that 95% of the time it wasn't going to work for them. Um, and, you know, by telling them that they should keep trying, even though it probably wasn't going to work, just didn't feel right anymore. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, it's funny. And I know that you are, um, a practitioner of intuitive eating. If, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I have, as you were talking, I was like, I have a box of donuts down in my kitchen right now that have gone stale. And I'm going to just, you know, like we got them for some workers that were doing some stuff around the house. And there was a time in my life. That's all I would have thought about is those donuts. And I would have probably eaten three of them, you know, like at some point, because I had, a, you know, I went out from an eating disorder and then I, I was always following some very thing in my mind. You know, I, I didn't even necessarily have a name to it, but it was something like there was always restrictions and, and that made me not able to have food in the house. Like, don't put that Nutella in the house. Don't have that in the house. We can't have that in the house. I need, I can't. And now I can have anything in the house. And people are always like, well, isn't that just eating whatever you want? So you're going to eat all those donuts. And I'm like, no, it's actually the opposite. It's so freeing. I feel like, cause I don't, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I, they, I can take them or leave them. And it's, wow, it's nice. Yeah. That is food freedom in a nutshell. It's the freedom to say yes or no, instead of I can, or I can't, I should, or I shouldn't it's, I want it or I don't want it. And it really puts that, you know, what I call satisfaction in the driver's seat, that if you can lead with satisfaction and allow yourself to have what you want, you can then use gentle nutrition to build a balanced plate. You can still want vegetables. You can still want to have, you know, high fiber, high protein food. Yeah. Because you're starting I'm to take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. But you're also, you also know that you're not undoing the benefit of a salad by having dessert, right? Mm -hmm. And in, when you're in that dieting mentality, you're very much focused on earning the fun foods that you think that you need to earn by having the good foods, right? It, it's completely messed up. 
Yeah, it, it, it is. It is completely messed up. Yeah. And, and as far as even intermittent fasting with blood sugar, I had on uh, Molly Downey, which was really interesting, too. And she's like, yeah, you know, she's like, that's even if you have that window, if you're just eating all the way through that window, you're still like spiking. I mean, it's not necessarily going to do what you're trying to do with with insulin resistance and, and blood sugar management either. Yeah. And here's the thing that I see with um, intermittent fasting more so than some of the other kind of plans out there is that it encourages people, I think, to binge. Um, and it encourages people to eat just because they can. And, and I see that all the time. People say, yeah, I wasn't really hungry, but I had another snack at 530 because I had to stop eating. Because I know I'm not going to be able to eat again until 10 tomorrow. So I better get this in. And it's like, well, have you noticed that it's not really satisfying if you eat something when you're not hungry? Yeah, but I figured I should because otherwise I might get hungry. And it's like, well, then if you you know, had were eating with permission, you could just eat. And, you know, it's this, again, it, it like encourages people to ignore their body's cues that are very clearly telling them I need fuel or I'm full um, and eating just because a rule has said that they can't. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. 
It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Excellent. Well, let's um, let's let's end this with a, a little post I saw of yours, which which has a lot of fun little facts in it, or I should say, miss facts in it that I that I wanted to talk about. You had a while we're talking about internet internet famous diet advice for this demographic. Um, you had bad nutrition advice you've seen over the course of just a week. So I'd like to just rattle off these five things here. Carbs cause weight gain. They def yeah, they definitely don't. <laughs> they definitely don't. Why are we demonizing them now? And why don't people see the parallel between how we demonized fat 20 years ago? I really want to know that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the carb insulin model of yes. weight regulation or metabolism, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, th I hope has passed its heyday um, because the studies keep coming out saying like, this is not where we need to be putting our research time or dollars because we keep proving that this is not the be all and end all. Can you explain um, what that is to people? The carbon Yeah. So it's this whole idea that we eat carbohydrates. There's an insulin surge that happens as a result of eating that that's normal. That's part of the process. Um, and that when we Eat. And insulin serves a couple of different roles here, but essentially it will store anything extra in our fat cells and it will, you know, store not just fat, but, you know, we'll also, we'll store, we'll take carbohydrates and kind of like store them into our cells. And so that's this whole model, this carbohydrate insulin model of metabolism. that if we keep insulin levels low, that we will make it harder for excess to be stored. But the problem is that one insulin is actually a satiety hormone. So it's very difficult to know that you're full and to feel full if you are not having that rise in insulin. Um, people who've done low carb do, I think, become used to that sensation of like, oh yeah, I'm not hungry, but they never describe it as full or they never describe it as like satisfied. And then when they start reintroducing it, they're like, Oh, that's what it's like to feel full and satisfied again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I kind of describe it because I'm full of analogies, good, bad, and ugly, but I describe it like a car. You can change the fuel that the car is burning and you can, you know, slow it down. You can maybe like change what comes out of the muffler, but at the end of the day, it is not fundamentally changing the engine. And so, you know, we have to think about making the best fuel choices for our engine. And, um, you know, the carb insulin model is, you know, hopefully dead in the water, um, when it comes to being like the missing link. Yeah, no. And I know that sensation. I, when I, when I did the low carb thing for a while and I would be very full after my breakfast of like avocado and eggs and, you know, all the other things, but my brain was still just not not okay for lack of a better way. Like, and that's when I wouldn't be able to have those donuts in the house or whatever. Right. My brain would be like, yeah. you should get some of that. You should like, it's, <laughs> it's something that you need in there. But now that I have like, just like a balanced, normal, 
breakfast, um, I don't think about food and my brain is fine. And I, you know, it, it it's, I, I don't have that hanging feeling that something is not quite right. You know, like I'm satisfaction. Yeah. Satisfaction is the key. And it's very difficult to feel satisfied if your meal is missing something. There's a reason there are three macronutrients in the, in the world. Yes. Um, with that carb insulin model, I mean, do you think a lot of this has been born out of, cause I wonder, I always take things back to that low fat craze where we dumped sugar in everything that we took fat out of, because like that excess of sugar is not doing us favors either. Right. Like you drinking a bucket of Mountain Dew is that can't be good for you. Oh, I mean, because, and that's the thing though, is that it's not that it's bad. It's that having that to the exclusion of other things isn't, you know, balanced for, for lack of a better word. But if you have a glass of Mountain Dew or whatever it is, you know, in whatever capacity you want to have it, as long as it's not excluding other things, or as long as it has a place that feels balanced, um, you're probably not doing yourself significant harm either. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's the all or nothing thinking. I think that the all or nothing thinking that persists in not just diet culture, in wellness culture, and even in just a lot of discussions around food and nutrition is that some is good, all is better or less is better. None is better. better. Right. Yeah. And so I think that what happened with the, the, 80s and early 90s craze around carbohydrates is that there was a realization that, well, low fat isn't working. <laughs> so maybe, okay, if low fat isn't working, what's the problem? Oh, maybe it's all the other things we were having. And so then it kind of completely swung the other way. Right. Um, right. When I don't really think that any of it can be explained by one food, one food group, one way of eating. Um, you know, I think that it's a, it's a complicated answer, but part of it is that we need to stop trying to fit all bodies into one body size and shape. We need to stop using things like BMI as a determinant of health. Um, and we need to start exploring health independent of weight. And, um, you know, and that's why I say like, let's not pursue intentional weight loss. Intuitive eating isn't anti-weight loss, but it doesn't make it a proxy for health. Um, so if I want someone to eat more vegetables, it's never going to be about the number on the scale. It's going to be, how does it make you feel? Does it help you poop more often? Does it help you feel full for longer so that you're not thinking about food every two hours? Um, you know, does it do all the other things that support your health that have nothing to do with the number on the scale? Right. Right. Speaking of sugar, that was one of the ones, the bullet points in your post too. Sugar is addictive. Yeah, it is not. Um, and I, um, I feel like I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead one day. Um, and, and this sugar, the, the, the food addiction model is controversial at best. And so, you know, yes, there are some scales that have been developed like the Yale food addiction scale. Um, there have been some studies that mainly involved rats looking at, you know, sugar solutions. Those but are very the, flawed though. I looked at those rat so studies. They're incredibly yeah. flawed. Like the they put those rats them? in hell. Of course they yeah. want sugar. Like when they put, they, 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get, but like, I actually just yeah. heard about this. They put those poor rats in a, basically a dungeon. You better believe they're hitting that sugar lever over and over again. Of course they are. But when they put them in like rat heaven where they could play and do things, they didn't care about the sugar as much anymore. Anyway, And the take home from those rat studies is that it was the rats who had their access restricted to one hour a day who chose it. So yeah. It is the behavior of restriction and not the access to the substance that creates the craving. Um, and, you know, I see this pretty much every day in my work that when we remove the control and the restriction and normalize having foods that people enjoy and taste good, which often includes foods that contain sugar, they can have it in amounts that they need to feel full and satisfied that don't feel like they're taking over their life. Right. And they just, they stop thinking about it. They can just choose in the moment. Do I want this or do I not want this? And that's it. That's the extent of the decision-making process. It's not, do I want it? How much can I have? You know, have I had anything else? Is this going to make me want more? And then they're thinking about it all the time because that's the behavior of trying to control it that creates the craving. But yeah, there is no science that supports sugar um, as an addictive substance in the same way that we view other um, substances like drugs and alcohol, or even, I mean, once you, once you go down the addictive slope, you, you, you enter, because, because anything, I mean, you talk about gambling, you talk about, I mean, there's a lot of things that can light up sensors, right? Yeah. Yeah. And addiction and reward pathways are similar, but slightly different. And, you know, it is very unlikely that food could produce a physiological response above and beyond what would be considered normal Mm. versus drugs um, or alcohol that hijack that system. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. And when we view the pleasure response as a normal part of our relationship with food and not something that needs to be pathologized, it can be something that you can welcome into your life. Right. Right? right. Like welcome the cookie that tastes like a little piece of heaven, you know, like that's okay. Um, you know, you don't have to think that it's because it's sweet and tastes good, that it's a bad thing. Right. But if you've put yourself in hell for long enough, then all of a sudden it is, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, you need and the whole box because <laughs> you're just like, Oh my God. People first started yeah. doing keto. My first flag that this was really different than other diets is that people would say, I've been craving blueberries or I've been craving an apple for two days. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm saving all of my carbs to have an apple on Friday. And I was like, what Wow, the hell? Um, or I, the person who came to me and said, I booked an appointment because I spent two hours calculating net carbs in a carrot versus an apple to decide what I would have with my lunch. Um, you know, so we crave the things we can't have that. And that has been proven to me time and time again with all diets, but with keto, you're going to crave carbs. You're going to crave sugar more. Keto does not cure your sugar addiction. Um, Not that it's an addiction, but you know, it will not make you no longer want sugar. It will convince you for a while that you don't want it because you've told yourself you can't have it. Um, but you will want it again and you will need more of it to feel satisfied if you continue to hold it in restriction. 
Amen. Soy <laughs> causes breast cancer. Yeah. So yeah, this is a, a persistent one, but I think it's slowly starting to change. And so I do too. I think the, it's finally going away. Yeah. Like it, you know, like 10 years ago, it was like a question that I got every week and now it's maybe like every month. So it definitely is changing, but a lot of it came from what we know about estrogen receptors and phytoestrogen. So phytoestrogens are these plant-based compounds that are in a lot of foods, but in higher concentrations in soy foods. And they, these isoflavones can bind very weakly to estrogen receptors. So the, the concern was that because they can bind to estrogen receptors, that they were on par with other estrogens, including our body's own estrogen. And, um, you know, there has been, and I think legitimately some concern around, you know, things that act like estrogen and, you know, because there has been such a rise in estrogen dependent cancers, but what we know now fairly definitively is that soy's phytoestrogens bind to the beta receptor, which is actually the protective estrogen receptor um, and not the alpha receptor. And even at that binds very weakly um, estimates are that it binds one, two hundredths to one, one thousandth, the strength of our own estrogen. So it is impossible for it to have this super physiological effect. Um, but the good news is that there has been a fair amount of research published that it may actually be protective against breast cancer because of that beta receptor binding. And that for some people, it binds enough to exert an effect that may actually help to reduce symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. Not for everyone weekly shouldn't, I think, be considered like as an equal alternative to hormone replacement. But for some people like me who can't take hormones, um, who haven't done well on hormone replacement therapy, it's been a game changer and a lifesaver. So oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go to the sweet potatoes contain progesterone because that's good. Did that come <laughs> from the wild yams is because like, is that yeah, that's exactly what it came from? Okay. Yeah. And so, well, and there's a, there's a compound in wild yams that can be converted to progesterone in a lab. Yes. Um, but wild yam cream on its own does not contain active progesterone. Oh, interesting. And yeah, but a lot of people, and I was one of them, used to think that sweet potatoes and yams were the same thing, especially for anyone I think who grew up in like, you know, where I grew up in Canada. I don't think we've ever actually seen a yam. Um, we only have sweet potatoes, um, but having been in parts of the States and Southern States, you definitely see that yams are very different than sweet potatoes. Um, they are not the same. Yeah. But that's where that came from. And then the final one, which I've talked about on the show a few times, but I think bears repeating is that every woman over 50 should take calcium supplements, which that is just not the case anymore. Right? No, you know, and I think that this is a hard one for people to swallow because there's still a lot of, I think, mainstream advice telling women that calcium is the most important mineral that they should be taking. So yeah. calcium is very important in building bone, but we reach peak bone mass somewhere between 30 and 40 at the latest. After we've reached peak bone mass, building bone no longer becomes priority. Slowing down the rate of bone loss becomes the priority. And, um, you know, we used to think that there was no harm in taking calcium. And, you know, I would still say that on the whole, it's fairly low risk, but there have been some studies that suggest that it may contribute to hardening of the arteries. Um, and, but most importantly, it has not been shown to reduce the risk of fractures. 
Right. Um, and so the take-home message is calcium is still important. We need it for a whole bunch of other reasons. Our heart in particular needs calcium to, you know, beat regularly and rhythmically. Um, you know, it, it's also involved in muscle relaxation. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons why you still want to include calcium rich foods, but you probably don't need calcium supplements. Yeah. Yeah, no, hundred. We we said that on the show a few times, but I think it always bears repeating. Uh, <laughs> this has been uh, completely delightful. Is there anything that you thought uh, to talk about that we haven't covered yet for our audience? No, I mean, I just I, I love any opportunity to normalize eating, and you know, <laughs> um, yeah. And so, as someone who has spent the better part of their life working with people in their relationship with food and health. Um, I like people to know that food matters, but not in the way you've been led to believe it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to feel like work all the time. It should be fairly easy because we have to make decisions about food every day of our life for the rest of our lives, multiple times a day. Um, why make that hard when it can be easy and enjoyable? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a great point. I think that what you just said is what it does, what does make it difficult for some women is that it is not something that you cannot do. You, you must, you need to eat, you know, that's just part of your life always. And it will always be part of your life. And li life is just way too short to make it so torturous for yourself each and every day. Yeah. There is a reason why most people can't name a single person that they know, or at most one or two, who have managed to find a way of eating that has produced intentional, sustainable weight loss. And that is because we are not meant to eat in a way that needs to be controlled at every meal. It's just not how we're designed. We have signals that tell us when to eat and that's hunger. And we know we have signals that tell us when we're full, but most people have never been taught to listen to those because they've only been taught to look at labels, count, track, monitor, calculate, um, you know, wager, <laughs> barter. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, so I think that for, for most people, they already have the evidence that dieting doesn't work. If they don't look at their own life, they look at the lives of the people around them. Um, and I just want women to know in midlife that there's never been a better time to ditch dieting and find food freedom. And it just makes everything better. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with triathlete and coach Kirsten Lewis. Menopause threatened to take Kirsten down and out of the sport she loved. And she found her way back to being stronger and faster than ever through a process she describes as rewilding menopause. And man, I loved this conversation. So come on back and hear all about me mountain biking naked under the full moon. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. 
And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.